0: Well, good morning. If you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter 9. As you're turning there, I've got a question for you to think about. If Christians won't be Christians, then who will be? If Christians won't be Christians, then who will be? Can we outsource our calling as followers of Jesus to somebody else perhaps? Uh, Could we hire somebody else to have it done for us? Are there contractors that we could call and hire to delegate the Christian calling out to them? I don't know of anybody else who will be Christians for us if we won't be. And I have not found any passage in Scripture that says that God has any other plan than that we would be who we have called to to be in Christ. If we won't be genuine Christians, then there's nobody else coming to do our job for us. The world is not going to do that for us. This morning we're going to look at Mark chapter 9 verses 30 to 50 and see what Jesus calls us to be. When he calls us to be Christians, when he calls us to be his people. Beginning in in verse 30 here of Mark chapter 9. We've covered some of these verses already, but we'll we'll go over them again shortly today. Verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to, to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise." Put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Lord, we live our lives on this plane that we can see and our neighbors and our family and friends are are milling about in a world so many think that this is all there is, Lord. But you have invited us into such a great hope in your son Jesus. I pray that you would help us that we would not be asleep in the day that you have called us to be, that you would help us to be awake to the eternal realities all around us all the time. I pray that you would help us to be your people in truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In light of this passage, I think the call for us is to live as genuine Christians in humility, peace, and love. We live as genuine Christians in humility, peace, excuse me, I said love, the word that I meant is holiness. Love is true as well, and that flows out of it. We'll see in verse 30 to 41, the call for humility, and in verse 42 to 50, the call for holiness. We start again in verse 30. Last week at the baptismal service, we covered some of this, but let's go over this again a little bit here. I want to say a few quick words about it. Um, A couple weeks ago, Joe preached movingly about Jesus healing a boy whom the disciples were not able to deliver from a demon. I was so helped by Joe's point that uh, the reality that they couldn't do this was a pointer that this was a ministry beyond them. They had to look to God, and it was Christ's ministry that he was doing through them. So there, the disciples, they seek to cast out a demon they're not able to. And Jesus does it. Uh, And... As we're moving along here in this passage, we see in verse 30 that Jesus is moving through Galilee. Now, thus far in the Gospel of Mark, almost everything's been in Galilee. There's been a few things now outside of Galilee, but the majority of Jesus' ministry has been focused in the northern region of Israel. He's been ministering there. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing. He's been teaching about who he is. He's been teaching about the kingdom of God. He's been preaching the gospel, calling to repentance. He's been doing all of these things over and over and over again. He's been going from one village to another. He's been sending his disciples out to go to different villages to to proclaim the kingdom that's at hand. And he has just been scouring the countryside of Galilee. But now the ministry is turning. He has... Uh, Luke's gospel says that he sets his face like a flint to Jerusalem. And now he's beginning that journey. He's passing through Galilee here. And in a minute, we'll see that he arrives in Capernaum. He's beginning to move towards the city that has slain the prophets. That's the direction he's going. And as he's now passing through Galilee, he tells his disciples that he's going to be crucified. He reminds them again. The Son of Man will be betrayed, that he will be crucified, and that he will rise again from the dead. And ironically, uh, the disciples, they, they, they don't really want to ask him about or say anything more about that, but they've got other things to discuss. Along the way, they're, they're arguing amongst, amongst each other who's the greatest. They're, they're having a, a bickering, selfish argument about who is the greatest. And when they turn up in Capernaum, this is the the city that Jesus has had his ministry based out of. They're back in the very house, probably, that Jesus has been ministering out of in Capernaum. When they get there, Jesus asks them, what you've been talking about? What were you talking about on the way? They didn't think that Jesus heard them, but of course he did. And Jesus knows what they've been talking about, and and instead of simply responding, he, he takes a child and puts the child in their midst, and he goes on to teach them about what true greatness is. Verse 35 says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If you want to be great, you've got to lower yourself. Next, he takes a child in his arms. Verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Jesus pulls in this child and calls them to receive him. I think what's going on here is that children are very easy to overlook. You know, we would feel like truly great people if important people gave their time to us. Imagine if The governor were to call you up and want your advice. You might feel important. Now, imagine if the governor said, Hey, I'd really like to come over and mow your lawn so you don't have to, so you can give your time to the important things that you do throughout the day. Well, you might feel very important in that case, right? We would want, if important people thought about you and even went so far as to serve you, then you'd really feel important, wouldn't you? But Jesus is calling them to the opposite. Not only should you not be quibbling over who's the greatest, but actually give your time and your attention to consider children who, at this time, are not going to pay you back. True greatness doesn't come in having great and noble people give their time and attention to you. True greatness sets its mind even on children, those who aren't going to make you look important uh, in this age. I have to admit, as I was reading through this and, and thinking through this passage and praying, I was reminded of my own pride as a young and aspiring minister in my late teens and early 20s. Uh, when I was about 19 or 20 or so in there, I remember I wanted to teach adults. As I thought about the ministry that God was giving me, I wanted to, I wanted to teach the Bible to adults. Somebody suggested youth ministry to me about investing in children, and I said no. No, I, I'm I'm called to teach adults. You know that's my calling. Uh, the The Lord was both patient with me, and I have to say that He has a sense of humor. Uh, though I was too high minded at that time to invest in kids, uh, that became my primary ministry through really all of my twenties. Gave a good number of years to caring for children and sharing the gospel with them and evangelizing. Uh, The ministry that I thought that I was too important for was the very one that the Lord called me to for a lot of years. Don't ever believe somebody who says that God doesn't know how to laugh. Uh, I think he has a good laugh as he's working for our humility and for our good. Uh, So we see in this passage a call to humility. Jesus has graciously opposed the pride of his disciples. And that sets us up for the next few verses that are coming here. In verse 38, John goes to Jesus and tells him about what maybe he thinks is a favor that he's done for Jesus. In verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Perhaps to John's surprise, Jesus corrects him. He says, don't stop him. Jesus argues that the one who performs a mighty work in his name will not quickly turn and curse Jesus. You could imagine it. Uh, If someone goes and he casts out a demon, he invokes the name of Jesus, and a demon comes out of somebody, that person's probably not gonna turn around and say, well, there's nothing to the name of Jesus. There's no power in the name of Jesus. If that person has seen a demon come out, he's not gonna turn around and say that Jesus is a fraud in the next minute. Next, Jesus says something that Uh, seems to contradict something he says elsewhere. He says, for the one who is not against us is for us. Uh, There's another saying that Jesus says in Matthew 12, 30 and, and Luke 11, 23. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I'll say those two again. The one from this verse, for the one who is not against us is for us. Luke 11.23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Some people have wondered if there's a contradiction here. Seems like maybe Jesus is saying two different things here that point in the opposite direction. I don't think there is any contradiction here. Uh, In the case in Matthew 12 and Luke 11, Jesus is in conflict with the Pharisees. They have accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. They've argued that the animating power behind Jesus' miracles is Satan himself. And Jesus says that they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit in doing that. It's after that exchange that Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here I believe what Jesus points to uh, is that those who are opposed to Jesus are against him. Now that's obvious. The next thing he says is that anyone who's not um, gathering, that these people are not gathering for God, but in fact they're scattering. It's not as if here, what Jesus is saying is it's not as if what he's doing is working for God on this track. And the Pharisees over here who are opposed to him, they're working for God on another track. And somehow those two are going to come back around together serving God's purposes. No, they're opposed to Jesus and anything they do is scattering the flock of God. They're not gathering for God in their own way over here. The fact that they have set themselves against Jesus means that they're opposed to God and they're not working for God. So in that case, we are looking at people who have set in their hearts themselves against Jesus. It's a different situation here that we're, we're looking at. Uh, we have a different person in mind in Mark chapter 9. Here is a man that believes in the name of Jesus enough to go toe-to-toe with a demon in Jesus' name. He is seeking to cast demons out in Jesus' name. Now, he is clearly not one who rejects Jesus like the Pharisees. He's not opposed to Jesus. I don't even think he's neutral about Jesus. But what we do know here is that he's not in the pack of the disciples. He's not along with them at this time. At the end of the day, we don't know where he is at spiritually at this point. um, But we don't need to know where he's at in order to see the point that Jesus is making. Jesus tells John not to stop him. He's not against Jesus, but is engaging in the works that Jesus has been doing in Galilee. And that should not be hindered, Jesus says. Even further, Jesus teaches that someone who gives even a cup of water to a follower of Jesus because they follow Christ will receive a reward. John seems all worried about whether or not this man follows the disciples. Notice he doesn't say here that he doesn't follow you. He's not pointing to the fact that he's not following Jesus. He says he's not following us. And and maybe he means that they follow Christ, but in light of the rebuke that Jesus, or the correction that Jesus has given in light of their pride, I think maybe they're getting stuck on themselves at this point. If this man genuinely believes in Jesus, he will be rewarded. If someone hears of Christ and believes, and they do even such a small act as giving a cup of water to somebody because they follow Christ, they will also be rewarded, Jesus says. There may have been some pride here for John as an apostle of Jesus and an inner disciple. He might be saying, who does this guy think he is? I think that brings us back here to the topic of humility again. I think we can have at least one point of contact as we think about how this applies to our lives. I think we can have at least one point of contact, and there may be several more. Uh, I think people, uh, Christians today, we can get so excited about what God is doing in our church or in our denomination or in our favorite ministry that we can be quick to naysay any Christian labor and endeavor that's not our own. Uh, We have to guard against a kind of pride that views every other Christian and Christian ministry with suspicion. If a so-called church or ministry is against Jesus as he's revealed in scripture, we should condemn that. Jesus has no problem condemning the Pharisees. But I think that it's far too easy to condemn other ministries and churches without carefully examining what they believe. There's something that gratifies our pride when we tear down what somebody else is doing. We can even feel better about ourselves and our devotion to the Lord when we speak evil of another church or ministry. We might even think we're doing Jesus a favor like John, but we should be careful. Again, we've got to call heresy heresy. There is such a thing as heresy, and it's out there. There's a lot out there. We've got to call sin, sin. And sin abounds both in and outside of the church today. But we must be careful, and we've got to make our declarations with humility. We have to be aware that we will give an account for the things we say and the things we don't say, knowing that God... Judges impartially. So Here's another call for humility for us. We've been looking at humility in this first point. But before I leave this, I don't want to miss an encouragement that's here in the text. There's an encouragement for us here. We should all be encouraged that God sees our ministry and he will reward it. If even a cup of water given to bless someone because of Christ will be rewarded, then we can have confidence that God values our labor for him. Any labor that we do for him, he values it. He sees it and he will reward it. Maybe nobody else sees it, but he sees it every time. It is so easy to slip into a mentality that says my labor for Christ is not valuable because I don't have an important role or an important office or an important ministry. Therefore, it's what I do really doesn't matter whatsoever to God, or in the church. We might say, I'm not a pastor, or I'm not a deacon, or I'm not a missionary, or I'm not a gregarious evangelist. We might think, I don't have a radio program, or an internet footprint, or I don't have a group of people following, therefore what I'm doing doesn't measure up to much. And the pride of some high-minded folks might even reinforce that mentality. But we should be confident that God is the one who has given us the ministry he has. Whatever ministry he's given you, God has given that to you. Don't despise it. He is delighted for us to put our hearts into it for his glory. You know, in this season, the heavy lifting of your ministry might be homeschooling. Put your heart into it because it glorifies God. It may be praying for grandchildren. Don't lose heart. It might be helping a depressed or lonely friend or family member. Keep at it by Christ's power. It may involve punching a time clock to support your family. Work heartily to your maker. Your ministry may not be flashy, but stay faithful. God sees it, and he will reward it. God can do mighty things with our little things when we are faithful. So we've seen the call to humility here. Next, let's look at the call to holiness in verses 42 to 50. In this next section, Jesus lays out the seriousness of sin in graphic terms. I mean, let's just be honest. This is, this is really a shocking passage of the Bible. I think it's one that, if we take it seriously, can make us pretty uncomfortable. Jesus talks in terms of drowning self-amputation and hellfire there isn't much more serious language available and it is employed regarding the seriousness of sin now we live in a day that avoids the word sin if the word is used at all in our culture I generally see it used as a joke But sin is no joking matter. It is dead serious. It is eternally dead serious. And so Jesus uses such incredibly strong language to talk about it. First, he mentions in verse 42, someone who causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. This is probably, I think, a reference to the child that's in his arms from a few verses ago. Uh, That connection is more clear in Matthew chapter 18, where the parallel to this is. Uh, This is clearly, though, referring to somebody who believes. Uh, certainly doesn't have to be somebody young. I think the idea of somebody who's young in the faith is equally applicable here. Jesus says that if you cause one of these little ones to sin, you'd be better off dead. You'd be better off deader than dead than to do that. The Greek for millstone here, uh, it gets smoothed over in translations, but it's literally uh, a millstone to a donkey, and that sounds kind of strange, but it, the idea is that it's a millstone, it's a it's a rock that's so heavy that you need a donkey to power that thing. You know, this isn't a guy strong guy going out there and pushing it. You got to have a strong animal to get this thing moving. Our team and I were down in Tennessee a couple weeks ago, and we went to a water mill where they ground wheat. And there's these great big millstones, these big circular millstones that were turned and they pulverize. The the grains uh, must have weighed several hundred pounds. The point here is that if you have a millstone tied around your neck and you're sent out to go for a swim, you ain't coming back up. That's worse than having the mafia send you out to swim with a pair of concrete shoes. That is how serious God takes it when somebody entices another person to sin especially the more vulnerable and trusting that person is the point is clear in verse 42 God takes enticement to sin seriously but what about sin that we commit in private Uh, people like to think that sin's not so much of a big deal if I'm not hurting anybody else you know what's the big deal I'm not hurting anybody else, you hear that. What about sin that's committed in private? Jesus doesn't take it lightly. Verse 43, following, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to, with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. It's easy to blame other people for our sins. We shouldn't do that. If we sin, we're guilty of our own sin. Sometimes we can't escape the fact that it's our fault. There, maybe it's easier to blame the part of the body connected to our sin. You know, my hand took what shouldn't have been taken or touched what shouldn't have been touched. My foot took me to places I shouldn't have gone or my eyes gazed at things I shouldn't have looked at or coveted things that didn't belong to me. Well, then Jesus has a simple enough remedy for you. Amputate it. Cut that part of your body off. Gouge that offending eye out. Wow. Now, the fact that none of us are missing limbs this morning points to the fact that we probably understand what Jesus is saying here, not so much to the fact that nobody has ever sinned in this room. I think we instinctively know that Jesus is not commanding amputation as a means of dealing with sin, not at least literal amputation of body parts. Here, Jesus is speaking in extreme terms to communicate the seriousness of sin, Sin is so serious that it would be better for you to do without your hand than to have both of your hands and go to hell. Brothers and sisters, do we take sin as seriously as Jesus does? He died for it. Can we fight it? Will we fight it? Or do we justify it? Do we shift blame? Do we go so far as to even coddle our sin? Brothers and sisters, be ruthless with your sin because it will be ruthless towards you. Sin will destroy everything that is precious to you if you let it. It will send you to hell if you give yourself over to it without forsaking it and without trusting in Jesus entirely. Sin is never worth what it will take from you. I don't remember who said it, but it's true. Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. The devil plays a crooked game. The house always wins when you gamble with sin. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, but it will be the eternal home of those who reject Jesus and cherish their sin. Jesus describes hell with language that only gets at how horrible it will be. Jesus here describes hell as unquenchable fire. It's a fire that never goes out. The worms that eat the dying flesh never die. Revelation 20 tells us how the righteous are resurrected to eternal life and how the unrighteous are raised up to eternal torment. The gnawing work of the worm goes on to eternity. The fire burns on and on without ever running out of fuel or being extinguished. Brothers and sisters, hell is real and it is eternal. No pleasure that somebody could ever get from sin will be worth the cost. No gain from sin in this world will be worth the eternal loss it brings. Be ruthless with sin. Give it no quarter. Show it no mercy. Do what you must do to be free of your sin. Turn to God in repentance by faith and by the Holy Spirit. Fight with all your might. For those of us who are in Christ, we've, we've gone there. We've trusted in Christ. And yet we must still fight sin with that kind of seriousness in our life. Jesus says here that everyone will be salted with fire. I think this points to the reality that judgment is going to be passed on over this entire world. No one is going to slip past God on the day of judgment. If you are not a follower of Christ this morning, if you've not turned from your sin, then today is the day to seek his mercy. None of us knows which day will be our last. Everyone will be salted with fire. Some have suggested in this passage, this verse, that in this fallen world, even the believer will be salted with fiery trials. We've escaped the fiery judgment of God, but life in this world will have trials, and that certainly is true. Jesus ends this teaching with a call for his followers to be what they are called to be. He says that salt is good. But what if that salt is no longer salty? What do you do then? You know, if your food is bland, you can put salt on it. But what if your salt is bland? What do you do with it then? Jesus makes his point clear. He says, Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Not only should we not entice others to sin, not only should we fight against sin in our own lives with all of our might, but we must positively give ourselves To what is good. We must pursue peace and pursue holiness in our lives. The Christian life is about more than avoiding sin. It's not less than that, but it's more. It's also about giving ourselves to the good things that God has called us to. Jesus elsewhere calls us the salt of the earth. We should be salty people. Again, if we are the salt of the earth, then who will be salty if we are not? If we are the light of the world, who will be the light if we cover our light? Christ has called us as his people to live genuinely as his people in humility, peace, and holiness. That's not a job that can be outsourced. This is what God has called us to, and we must take it up in earnest. So God helping us, let's strive to have salt in ourselves as we live as his people before his face. I'll invite the men to prepare for communion and Elizabeth to come and play. This morning, if you are trusting in Christ,